Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. This is Sunday, what they often call the March of 15th, 2009. And uh, beware the Ides of March. Yes, indeed. Beware the Ides of March, uh, which I guess uh, means no Caesar salads today, or you're likely to get a crouton up the nose or downed the uh, the windpipe. So uh, just something to be aware of that salads, while often healthy, can also be uh, deadly. And I think that's the lesson we want to get from ancient history. So um, I guess uh, the news, <laughs> for want of a, a better uh, way of putting it, is um, that uh, I went down to the Free State Project's annual shindig, the uh, Liberty Forum in Nashua, New Hampshire. Christina and uh, Isabella and I drove down. Uh, and pretty much when you have a baby, driving to New Hampshire is a similar time frame to rowing to Beijing. Uh, and given that Beijing is quite a lot inland, that metaphor actually works beautifully. So it was a fairly lengthy um, uh, go-round to drive, but a lot a lot of fun. And, and Isabella was charming and wonderful, uh, of course, uh, to travel with. Um, Christina, on the other hand, no, Christina was wonderful too. So we had a great time. We were down there from Thursday. We left and drove back on Monday. Uh, met some very nice people. Um, uh, Isabella was very fascinated by, curious about, and excited to meet all of the crowds. And uh, she she was only she only didn't like applause. So in that sense, she is the complete opposite of the applause slut daddy. And um, uh, she was uh, she was just great. And uh, so I did my uh, I, I saw a couple of speeches, and then I did a speech on Sunday. And uh, I've had some questions as a podcaster too about it. I'll just mention something that I think is uh, interesting, um, which is uh, people have said, well, well, how did you prepare for it? And I think it's interesting, uh, other, of other than, of course, uh, uh, sacrificing the requisite chickens uh, and uh, eating a vast amount of their entrails, the way that I prepared for it, and this may be of use if you have something similar to do, the way that I prepared for it was not to prepare for the content, but to prepare for the form. I mean, I'm pretty much down with the content by now doing speeches, endless endless speeches as I have for so long. I'm pretty much down with the content now. And so what I uh, prepared, uh, the, the way, and, and the only notes I had, I had four little bullet points that I had jotted down that uh, were just make, wanted to make sure that I, I hit those points because sometimes I get self-tangented into the stratosphere. But... Uh, of course, I did a ecosystem consultation. I sat down. You know, we all in alignment, and and why why is it that we want to do this, and and all that. And of course, uh, the the reason that I took the speech, and I think the reason that the speech was uh, so successful. And if you do want to listen to it, you can go to tinyurl.com forward slash nh speech and uh, listen to it there. Uh, the video should be out uh, uh, hopefully in a couple of days. Um, the reason that I wanted to do it was fundamentally to uh, bring bring some happiness to people, and not happiness in terms of the speech, although people did seem to be happy to be um, uh, to be watching the speech or to be participating, really. And it was more of a working back-and-forth session than a speech I did like half an hour, 20 minutes or half an hour, and then we did an hour and a half of audience participation. And the goal was to bring uh, happiness to people. In other words, since reason equals virtue equals happiness, to bring uh, my happiness front and center. And, and that's not an easy thing to do, to bring happiness to a crowd. I mean, it sometimes feels kind of vulnerable. To bring happiness to people, to get them interested, uh, perhaps in, in the kind of philosophy that we talk about here, listen to some podcasts or whatever. But the fundamental goal was to bring happiness to them. And I think that's why 
I responded very positively. And it, my, my fundamental goal was not to change their mind because I have no control over that. Uh, and, of course, if you interact with someone with the goal of changing his or her mind, then you are automatically in a sort of hierarchical relationship that they will consciously or unconsciously resist. So that doesn't really work. When you interact with people with the goal of bringing them some genuine value, happiness, and satisfaction, in other words, not to impress ideas or, or conclusions upon them, but hopefully to give them an example of a methodology, uh, because I'm never wed to a conclusion, as I've mentioned before, but rather a methodology, then I think they get that you want them to be happy, right? So if you're a doctor who wants to do an operation because you want to buy a boat, people will sense that. And if you're a doctor who wants to do an operation uh, in order to help uh, improve someone's quality of life, uh, that person will feel that as well. So my main preparation was to, um, uh, to, to recognize why I took the gig and to, to make sure that I focused on uh, bringing happiness, curiosity, fun, the joy that I've always talked about as the goal of philosophy to the audience so that they could get a sense of how happy philosophy could make them uh, or this approach that we take here, get them interested in studying philosophy, whether it's through FDR or some other mechanism, and to expand them beyond the, uh, you know, merely political. And merely political is a diminutive term, which I don't mean exactly that, but more than just the political approach, which seemed to be very central to that weekend. So basically, uh, what I'm saying is that you have to, well, I felt that I had to really like the audience to see the best within them so that they could see the best within themselves. And with that affection, uh, happiness, and you could almost say love, uh, approaching the audience, they responded very positively to that. And uh, I think it's a, it's a reasonable lesson, right? Which is that if you can't approach people with affection and positivity, it's usually best not to approach them at all. And uh, if you can't approach anyone with happiness and positivity, then um, you might want to work on yourself before going out to communicate about philosophy in the world. So I just wanted to mention that as an approach that hopefully you will find interesting and uh, helpful and useful. So uh, that's it for my uh, introduction. Um, the activity has been quite, it's quite substantial activity has been generated from the conference, uh, sold a whole bunch of books, uh, and um, we hit our very first ever 100 plus, actually it was 100 and 2.5 gigabytes of downloads, not counting books, um, so just podcasts, 102 gigabytes of downloads one day, I think it was Wednesday this week, and of course some of that, or a lot of that, is the um, the speech itself, but uh, uh, that's some some fine responses, and uh, very, very pleased. The organizer of the event, a fine gentleman by the name of Chris Lawless, who never needs a mic. Uh, he um, he sent me a note saying that he uh, he had high expectations, but that the speech surpassed even those, and that they were still buzzing about it on the Tuesday after the Sunday after the speech about how much fun it was and so on. So uh, I think it's a it's a good home run for us as a community. And of course, uh, though I'm the one who's front and center in these kinds of things, I think it's important to remember that everybody who participates in this conversation almost everybody <laughs> contributes to the quality of this conversation. And I could not have done as good a speech without the curiosity, energy, participation, and, of course, financial support of you, the magical, elf-like, sylph-like, dryad-like listeners. And uh, so thank you again so much for driving the quality and uh, excitement of this conversation, which makes it all possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
So that's it for my introduction. Uh, we have uh, people who wish to have a chittle chattel today. Uh, I am here. The uh, gorgeous and talented Christina is here in her patented spandex Sunday show costume. And uh, I'm, of course, wearing one of the thigh-high boots and not on my leg. And um, uh, Isabella is, uh, thankfully for herself, perhaps because she can't understand English yet, asleep uh, in the next room. But I'm sure she will be up before the show is over because, like me, she's always terrified of missing anything that's fun and exciting. So uh, so please step up, uh, unmute yourself if you have questions, comments, issues, problems, and I am all donkey ears and then some. Hello, Steph. Hello. Can you hear me? No. Yes. Okay. Um, this is uh, Richard. Um, Hi, let Richard. Me know if this, let me let me know uh, if the sound is um, it's not okay on your side. I can hear you uh, very clearly on my side. You are clearer than my conscience. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, I want to just focus on a specific thing or else I'm going to just uh, wobble my words and uh, trip over myself. Uh, okay, so here, here I go. Um, okay, I was born in a cult uh, here in Montreal, Quebec. Um, and I want to ask just to start up that I have a question and it goes like this. Is it normal to have a remainder of one's life uh, quasi-normal um, if you still don't have any any fun, pleasant memories uh, of your parents or, or your siblings or anybody whatsoever um, from the first 22 years of, of, of my life in, in the cult. I, I certainly don't want to interrupt, and, and let me just make sure I understand your question. Your question is basically, and, and let me know if I'm way off base, your question, Richard, is, is it possible to have a normal life with nothing but unpleasant memories of the first 22 years? Oh, yes. Well, I would say yes. I would say yes. I'm not going to say it's easy. Um, but but my experience has been, and all of this, of course, is just an opinion, but this has certainly been my experience. I'll stand by my experience, though not all of the actual facts uh, of the conclusions, but my conclusions have been that if you've had a horrendous and, and abused childhood, and, and yours, of course, you've, you've posted a little bit about the cult, on the board, and of course it is you know, huge, huge, massive sympathies and hugs for... The, the terrible, terrible, terrifying circumstances that you were born into and, and, of course, what that all meant in terms of your parents staying there and your siblings' involvement and so on. So, first of all, just massive, massive sympathies for all of that. But my experience has been, Richard, that if you have a really tough childhood, you either get a chance for bliss or misery. What you will never have a chance for is the life of quiet desperation that apparently most of the middle-of-the-roaders lead. And I understand. Right. So so I think that you have the chance for a greater happiness than the average, but you also, of course, have a tendency towards a greater unhappiness than the average. 
And the metaphor that I've used before, and I'll just touch on it briefly here in case you haven't heard it, because I know you're relatively new, is that if, if I'm born and, and my family has congenital heart defects, a heart murmur or some sort of arterial blockage or whatever, then I'm either going to be really unhealthy or what I'm going to do is I'm going to exercise, I'm going to be very careful about what I eat, I'm going to get my heart monitored on a regular basis, and I'm actually going to end up healthier than the average. So I'm either going to be sicker than the average or healthier than the average, but I'm never going to be average. That's not possible. I think we have the choice to go either way, but it's not possible to be average. If I come from a family with a strong history of diabetes, uh, obviously I'm going to exercise, watch my food, watch my sugar intake, get my blood sugar and my glucose levels monitored regularly. So I'm actually going to end up with a lower likelihood, like genetic factors aside, with a lower likelihood of getting, because I have a higher likelihood of getting diabetes, I'm going to end up with a lower likelihood of getting diabetes even than the general population. So the trials, tribulations, sufferings, and traumas which occur to us early in life give us a tendency towards a sadder life than the average, but they also give us the incentive for a healthier and happier life than the average. And the choice really is what we do with the knowledge of the sufferings that we've experienced. And I think if we work on self-knowledge, on self-empathy, we can end up with greater strength, yes. greater character than the average. And that's not much of a consolation prize, but uh, when you do achieve it, it certainly seems like the suffering almost becomes worth it, if that makes any sense. Yes, it, it makes complete sense, uh, Steph. And and I just want to thank you in advance before I, I, I forget. Um, see, if, um, me... Uh, objectivism, uh, neotech, and many other sources helped me get out of the cult, okay? I totally, completely escaped, okay? I escaped uh, by just leaving a little note on my desk of uh, this was planned for a long time, over the span of one year, um, and I escaped through my bedroom window while I locked my door of my bedroom while the rest of my family was at the church, if you will, and, and I have... Uh, it rented my first apartment, uh, you know, without any, any clue, any anybody else finding about it, and and I drove to like it's forty kilometers away, and I had tears just streaming down my face, and I've never looked back since then, and and I've listened and watched so many of your videos and 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 listened to your podcast, and. You're the only place, source, area in this universe, as far as I'm concerned, that knows what the heck he's he he's talking about, and and that it's so powerful for me in so many ways. Um, and going earlier, you mentioned about um, you know you're you're either going to go insane, go go worse, or much better and and much happier. Okay, and. Just before I uh, discovered FDR and by accident but while uh, surfing the internet in December last, 08, I was just this close to committing suicide. And I, I just cannot thank you enough other than uh, the, uh, the hard cash that I've uh, donated so far, which is, which is uh, so much... Uh, it's it, it's coming so much uh, from deep in my heart uh, w without any guilt um, 
uh, that that financial support. And and also uh, coming back again to what you said, either you know you're going to go worse, like uh, speaking in a physical state, you're going to have diabetes if you don't take care of yourself, and so on. And that is the first thing, and basically the only area that I have mastered so incredibly well to a, an extremely high level. Where uh, today, you know, it's. It's I, I, I'm never sick. Basically, I never have colds. I never have headaches and so on. And now I'm working uh, with F, to FDR uh, information sources um, to get <laughs> the, 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 the mental part uh, uh, above above water, if you will. I certainly do appreciate that. I mean, I think that's very high praise. And, and again, I, I always try to to deflect uh, not not out of any sense of false humility. I certainly do have my vanities, and I appreciate what you're saying. But you know, the the quality of the conversation here is a collective effort, right? I mean, the, there is stuff that I come up with. There's the, as you know, the amazing listener conversations. There's the generosity of people like you. So it really is a collective effort. I certainly do appreciate what you're saying, and and hugely grateful for your your kindness. But that you know that aspect of the collective endeavor, I think, is really important. I I do have some questions, and I, I certainly don't want to interrupt anything that you want to um, no do, talk do about. ask now. Okay, ask your questions. Yeah, go far away. Just despite uh, some of the opinions of, of some people, I actually don't know much about cults. Um, I've certainly never been uh, near one. And uh, uh, so, I, I, you know, if you could uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, and if, I'm, if I remember right, you were 22 when you left. Is, is that right? Yes. So if you could tell me a little bit about the salient characteristics of the cult and the history, um, and also uh, if you could yes. tell me the, the stages that occurred for yes. you after you left that you felt... Uh, left you in a, a state of suicidality. Uh, I would certainly appreciate it if if it's not too yes. difficult for you to talk about. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, the the cult's name is La Mission de l'Esprit Saint. Okay. Uh, all all the literature is in French. Okay. There's basically three three chapters: Montreal, Laval Tree. Laval Tree is a small town. Uh, on the coast of the St. Lawrence River, a seaway, if you will, okay? And the third uh, chapter is in uh, Downey, that's a suburb of uh, Los Angeles, okay? And, um, well, to, to give you uh, much more information, uh, like it's, it's, it's online now, okay? Uh, last week, a mainstream journalist from the Montreal, one of two Montreal French newspapers, there's the Journal de Montréal and then there's La Presse, the La Presse journalist Marie Allard uh, discovered my postings on FDR. How wonderful is that? And she sent me a long email, and she she wants to talk to me. She wants to see me. She wants to interview me, to uh, because she specializes in um, in education, the the quality or the lack of in uh, public and private uh, areas. And now she's venturing into. Um, uh, education in cults and religions and sex, uh, S-E-C-T, -E, um, -E sect. Yeah, um, and so she discovered me like that. But initially, I just jumped on it. I said, wow, that's amazing that you discovered my posting on FD FDR and all that. And yes, I want to meet, I want to talk to you and so on. But I said, <laughs> it, like, a few minutes later, I, I emailed her again in China. I said, uh, well, uh, yes, okay, I'm willing to answer a few questions, no more. 
uh, in other words, I want to spend uh, the least amount of time uh, with you doing this. Um, and I'm, I'm changing my mind. I'm not going to meet in person uh, because I have <laughs> I have already wasted uh, 22 years, the first 22 years of my life. And I know so much now more than ever that my time, your time, everybody's time is the only thing I need. Anybody cannot manufacture more. So I said, uh, there you go. And that's it. You know, um, and, uh, sorry, what were the aspects of the cult that were, um, I mean, obviously okay. this is, you know, this is tough stuff to talk about and you don't have to, I'm just genuinely curious uh, and yes. uh, want to know what the aspects of the cult were that are uh, the most troublesome. Yes. Okay. It's, there's only about 1500 members. Okay. It's decreasing year by year. Uh, thank goodness. Okay. They, they, uh, expose, um, Many similar teachings as the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, general Catholicism, religion, and uh, Judaism, and all that. Namely, um, you know, there's the Jehovah's Christ, but there's another one after Christ, uh, Jesus. Um, and it's ours. Our guru was, uh, he came in the early uh, 20th century, and his name uh, went by. Jean Richard de la Flèche, and he was apparently, you know, the third coming uh, after Jesus, and he was about to uh, finally save Earth from itself, you know, humanity from itself. I'm sorry to interrupt. So this, the third coming after Jesus. Who was the one in the middle? Oh no, sorry, I, I'm I, I'm sorry. Um, there's there's three, right? There's Jehovah, Jesus, and well. Oh, okay. Then this guy. Okay. Everything I've brought up. There's a third one called Jean Richard de la Flèche. My the guru, you know. So I'm guessing uh, that the cult doesn't exactly worship modesty. Okay, I think I got yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So of course they still believe that um, that the earth is. Um, oh yeah, no, uh, sorry. That the sun is uh, is the devil, and that uh, any uh, they marry among themselves, even even among first generation cousins. So there's plenty of physically and mentally retarded people in there. Okay, and they oh, because they, of they, uh, intermarriage within the same gene pool is that right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Women, mothers, they're, they're highly discouraged or nearly banned from having a job while uh, having a family. So they stay at home and they produce as many babies as they 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 can physically tolerate. While the father uh, is is the almighty authority in the home. Right, so uh, they're and, not so much into conversion as they are into breeding because it's easier to inflict this crazy stuff on yeah, it's, innocent it's children eugenic, than it is Steph. to convert rational adults or semi-rational adults, right? Yes, Steph, it's eugenics. Sure, they yeah, say, Yes, they say if you think just about positive thoughts all the time as a mom, you'll have a perfect kid, basically. You won't be corrupted by uh, especially urban influences, you know? So, I mean, the first 22 years of my life at Lavaltry is a very rural pasture area you know it's uncorrupted by the urban areas where it's densely populated by corrupted uh, devilish people which right, is, I right. think, the opposite. in other words anybody well, who's not in the in the cult now how does it work financially do they take gen people's earnings do cult, they all work collectively cult. on a farm or how does it work in terms of its uh, economics oh by sheer by sheer uh, clever uh, manipulation of the guilt trip Yes, the uh, donation, uh, they call it tie, tie in church often. Oh, uh, yes, they just cajole you, manipulate you into uh, parting 
uh, with uh, a huge chunk of whatever excess uh, money you 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 uh, you earn. And the tithe uh, is often ten percent, at least as far as I understand it. Would it be around that figure? Or was it larger or smaller? Oh yes, at least ten percent. See, I had one sister and four brothers, um, and 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 of course, you know, to get a real good job or career, it's you know, often it's in the cities or more urban areas. So you know, me us, it, it costs that much more to travel long distances to uh, you know from where we live in a very farm-like area, very rural to far away to get any kind of decent jobs. And of course, any higher education is, is, is highly frowned upon. I had to fight my parents to go to, uh, to CIGEP, to college. And get this, in 1986, I was the only boy at 17 years of age in an early childhood education class to work in daycare. Right. And right. I was my main goal, my number one goal to go to go into the, this three year program is was to uh, not to work as a daycare worker, but to find out, at least try to find out what the heck I miss and what happens at that age, because I have zero happy recollection and warm one affection from my parents, right, my brothers, right. sisters, and anybody in the call. I am a robot. Right, right. And um, so did you go to public school in the cult? Was it more secluded? Uh, how did that work when you were younger? I went for six years, six years of elementary schooling and illegal, unregistered, unknown, uh, small uh, a, a school of about 30, um, 20 some uh, students f from the cult that even the government didn't know about it. Oh, so it was a kind of unregulated private school and you were kept out of the mainstream schooling system, is that right? Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. My mother was my own teacher, one of her sisters, one of my aunts, and get this, uh, because we couldn't afford it as the general, the cult, okay, collectively, the finances were not enough to, so that they could uh, uh, so-called educate us in beyond elementary school. You know, we had no choice. We had to go to high school in, in, in the corrupt, uh, non-cult world, if you will, okay? And I went to Joliet, Joliet High School. It's a small English high school. Anglophone High School in Joliet, about 300 uh, students at the time. I, I, perhaps today it's even closed because uh, the Anglos are going out of Quebec progressively. And I, I entered there at 11 years old as, as a junior, and I was so incompetent, uh, so incredibly shy. And, and I, I mean, incompetent very much in the social context with... Um, Members of the opposite sex with girls, even though back then I didn't know uh, that I wasn't straight. Okay, I only discovered it when I was twenty-seven years of age. Oh, that now is, when you say wasn't straight, do you mean gay or bi or some combo? I am. I am a very quite a well-known uh, out queer person here in Montreal. I used right. to work as a professional drag queen. 
Right. Okay. Got it. I just, just wanted to, the... to get so so. There's that additional layer of complication, right? Because of course, if they're religious, then the homosexuality would be considered rather than uh, a genetic, uh, um, I'd say, uh, characteristic. Right? It's not a condition because that indicates that there's something wrong with it. But a genetic, instead of recognizing that it's a genetic characteristic uh, resulting from particular hormone baths in the womb, they of course would consider it. And tell me if I'm wrong, but they would wouldn't they consider it? Something, you know, uh, evil and, and satanic impulses towards other men and so on? Yes, that's absolutely right. And thank goodness for, uh, to you, thank goodness for you uh, and me listening uh, to one of your podcasts uh, on, on homosexuality and uh, the more recent one where you mentioned this, this book, uh, Why Men Can't, Can't Iron? Yes. And, and, I, and now I understand and I'm so much less confused and more at peace with myself, with my own uh, sexual orientation and all that. Uh, because, I mean, uh, before that, uh, I was really uh, a lot less confident, confident in answering, um, especially patients, uh, patients' questions at the hospital where I work, which I just totally love my job. Uh, I'm the only physiotherapy assistant um, in, in, at the local hospital I work for, and 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 before that I was just totally like dumbfounded and just mad inside my head. Every time a patient asked me, you know, especially these little you know sickly ladies, you know, they asked me, "Oh, you must be so good to your wife and your kids and and, and all and so on," and I and I just I just I just was dumbfounded. I didn't know what to say for many years, and and, and at the end I was. I was I was starting to plan, um, you know, what to say if it if it was going to happen again, uh, and and totally be deceitful with myself by saying yes, I'm married and I have two kids and a boy and a girl, and I, and I told myself if they ask more than that, you know, do they like school? How old is the kids? I would say, well, I would prefer not to talk about it right now and focus on your rehabilitation and, and not, you know, right, right. Right. Okay, and um, uh, the kind of education that you received in this um, off the beaten track, to say the least, uh, school that you went to, uh, was it mostly religious? I'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of uh, uh, science and maybe not a whole lot of math. What was the content of the religion that you, it was you saying that your mother was uh, the teacher? Yes. <laughs> You know, it was very uh, rudimentary uh, stuff, you know, um, so much so that I do really think that I taught myself to read and write, Steph. I taught myself to read and write almost. Right, right. There, there's, you know, everybody knows the Britannica Encyclopedia, okay? But there's a lesser well-known, more for younger and folks and so on. It's called Grody, Grody Encyclopedia, okay? It's like a 22-volume and there's annual, there's one annual volume that comes out um, and so on. So I've read that back and forth through and through many times because that was the only thing other than the Time magazine that my father was allowed to subscribe to. Not even anybody in the call was allowed to subscribe to Time magazine or other corrupted devilish uh, magazines, in quotation. Okay, because my father uh, was part of the executive committee, and in 86, he became a priest, and we called them uh, the, uh, the servitor. Okay, so 
I, I, I often uh, regularly ask my father, are you finished with the Time magazine? And he was always um, mad and irritated every time I asked him you know, for the Time magazine. And, and so, so, you know, from, from, uh, for, for many years uh, before I discovered direct mail, uh, stuff that I could buy through the mail and send away uh, to, to, to Time magazine and elsewhere, uh, and then once you're on direct mail, you know, you get on the mailing list and they send you more stuff from other sources. Before that, it was just Time Magazine and Grosvenor Encyclopedia that I got any, ba any basic real scientific knowledge. And one of my favorites was uh, Albert Einstein. Right, right. And, and, and Tesla, Tesla, which you also mentioned in your, your podcast, uh, which I haven't listened to yet. Uh, there's so many. It's so great. And, uh, okay, uh, listen, so Richard, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just uh, because I have this, um, I had this book set to one side because I've been getting lots of questions about some of the yes. evidence behind the um, the sort of the gay brain, so to speak, which is actually yes, yes, my well, definition of philosophy. But <laughs> for some people, it's a little different. Um, would you like to hear a few paragraphs about some of the science behind it? Yes, sure. Okay, sure. go ahead. Uh, this is from page 41 of the book, Why Men Don't Iron, the fascinating and unalterable differences between men and women. Uh, so it says, uh, it seems, they say, it seems obvious that hormones will determine our gender. But until well, very I, recently, the further sorry, assertion Steph? that this, I'm sorry? Hello, Steph. Hello. You know what? I have already listened to that. And also, I'm going to buy the book. I have already listened to that. Okay, then don't uh, worry about it. I'll do it as a podcast then later. I won't, uh, I won't bore you if you've already heard it. But I'm so sorry. Yes. So, yes. so then you went, yes. to, you went to high school. Your science knowledge, of course, was pretty backwards. Uh, some of your math knowledge was pretty backwards. And, of course, your social skills were Zero. tough, right? Yeah, for sure. Because you're, you're only used to dealing with people Nothing. who are propagandized and who aren't necessarily even close to honest or open or authentic. Yes, we are made to feel not to have especially no pride in ourselves. No real, authentic, earned pride that, that one can achieve by uh, uh, accomplish, accomplishing, uh, creating uh, you know, benevolent values for self and others. Pride doesn't go to me. To, to earthlings, it goes to our gurus out there in, in the Vava, there in, in, the, in, in, uh, in heaven somewhere where, you know. Well, and of course, so sorry to interrupt, but uh, it's been my very strong experience that um, uh, religious organizations of every stripe and hue, and particularly more extremist ones such as yourself, are going to be very hostile towards psychology, the study of the self, self-knowledge, and so on, because... If you go down the road of self-knowledge, you realize that religion is a psychological projection, which is not good for those who want to retain power. Yes, and, 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 and Steph, you have no idea how uh, worldwide, and specifically myself, how, how, how benevolent, you, how much you help me. And, and, and I, 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 I put the FDR link to every website that I have, I have many websites and, and, and pages and so on and stuff on, in, and online. And I yak about FDR so much everywhere I go, at work and, uh, and so on, that I just can't get enough. And, and, and you know what? You're the only one and, and that talks about the link between child abuse, which I've had so much, like so many other people, and why we have, you know, 
governments and coercion and initiatory force everywhere. Right. I mean, I, certainly there are lots of people in the psychohistory side is uh, very good for this that talk about child abuse and certain forms of violence. But definitely the anarchist psychology stuff is something that, I mean, maybe other people have worked on it, but it's certainly something that with the help of Christina, we've been pushing forward here. Now, what was it about the um, your childhood experience that you would characterize, and I'm sure quite rightly so, uh, as abusive? What was the, What were the aspects of it that were the most uh, disturbing for you? Okay. I was not allowed to question anything. I have such vivid, vivid, crystal clear memories of questioning my mom. My mom about question uh, questions of, okay, so, you know, okay, so if God exists, you know, have you ever seen him? What does he look like? And so on and so on and so on. And I remember that I've, I, I was driving my mom uh, to exhaustion uh, with all the questions, the, the natural benevolent questions that would have, like you focus so much on having good curiosity in, 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 about learning. And, and I have so much of that still uh, amazing to this day, you know? I mean, perhaps if I didn't get out, escape from the cult, I mean, just weeks or months before I did, maybe I, it, was, it was going to be too late to me, for me. Yeah, well, there certainly is that possibility, right, that enough harm occurs that the road back becomes virtually impossible. So, you know, again, massive kudos, congratulations, and honor, all Thank honor, you. flowers, and <laughs> bows to you for getting out of such an incredibly Steph, difficult situation. Steph, uh, dancing, all forms of dancing. Even among married couples in the cult, was banned. Was banned. Why? Because it is just one more thing that may tempt you to commit adultery. How awful and silly is that? So is that why today, uh, like forever, I think, I, as far as I can remember, I just love and practice ballet. And one of my heroes in the ballet area is Rudolf Nureyev. And here in Canada, Rex Harrison. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I had to lock my door of my bedroom, okay, in the middle of the night so I could dance in the dark for as long as I could. Yeah, something as basic and as wonderful as dancing. I mean, but of course, right, they want to make every physical pleasure is, is against the mortification of the spirit, right? So that, that means the, the opposition to all forms of pleasure, whether it's uh, sex or sensual eating or dancing um, uh, or masturbation, all forms of physical pleasure, of course, are considered to be anathema to those who want to profit from debasing um, the spirit. I mean, why did I, I, as soon as I escaped the cult, I isolated myself completely from the world. For five years, from 22 to 27, and I've read until my eyes burned out every evening, almost every evening, especially on the whole weekends, for five years at the National Montreal Library in Sherbrooke. Boulevard. Well, you had a lot of catching okay. up to do, right? A lot of re, yes. uh, not, a, not yes. just re-education, but de-education and then re-education, right? Well, exactly. Exactly. So much disintegrating what I've, uh, what I've gotten and, and integrating uh, more valuable stuff. And, and it goes on to this day. 
Now, it, what happened? I'm sorry to interrupt, but what happened was it? Do you think that uh, set you on the path, as you say, that you felt uh, suicidal uh, somewhat recently? What do you think happened in that area? Oh my God, goodness! Oh, it's it's very much it's very much an issue of lack of self-esteem. It, it, it has to, it has to be linked to that. Lack of self-esteem and being so alone for so much, for so long. I still have nobody except the first and only person that allowed me to have, to have me as a friend in her life, okay? I've met this, this, this lady, um, um, in 1996, okay, November 96. Um, and, and in hindsight, because I'm going into therapy now, I, I just finished my sixth session, okay? And I can't, cannot thank you enough for urging people to try therapy, okay? Because for the longest time, I always viewed it like most men as a sissy thing to do, as a new age uh, stuff, that you know, it, for women, not for men, okay, and 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 so, in hindsight, I never knew why I met this girl, this girl, and I stayed with her, and we went clubbing and 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 so on. The main thing we had in common was dance music, and and that's it, okay, that's it, okay. And in hindsight, because of therapy and so on, and listening to SDR, I know now in hindsight that. We were in a similar uh, context at that time. We were both alone, um, uh, miserable, uh, depressed. We didn't. We both didn't have any friends, and so we just it, we just came together as magnets. And today, she's the only one that I have uh, on, that I uh, that I can call anytime uh, on speed dial. Uh, that ever uh, returns my calls and, and, and so on. Everybody else uh, has always uh, declined me. And in hindsight, I, I, I now I know much more why. It's because I have never allowed myself to trust uh, uh, other people uh, enough, enough to have any semblance of a long-term relationship. Right. Uh, can I and, be totally annoying and just maybe give you no, a no, no. way of looking at Steph, one? Steph, 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 get this, okay? Just to get, get to know uh, me uh, much more quickly there is that feel free, please, to okay. interrupt and be annoying in quotation as much as you want. <laughs> okay, good. Um, you, you said that it was a lack of self-esteem that was a possible contributing factor towards... Uh, suicidality? Perhaps. I, mean, I, have, I still have a lot of self-knowledge to do, but perhaps that is just one of the many things lacking. Right. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, a, a, a lack of self-esteem, uh, when self-esteem goes down, my experience has been, you know, the, the personality can't stand a vacuum, right? There's no such thing as an 
a lack of self-esteem, uh, in my in my opinion. What what actually occurs for us, in my experience, Richard, is that we get an escalation of self-attack, not a lack of self-esteem. Like when I'm feeling calm, I don't sit there and say, I have a lack of anger, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not how I, what I say is I feel uh, calm. And uh, in the same way, given what you had said about suicidality, which is, of course, the ultimate form of self-attack and self-erasure, that it was not a lack of self-esteem, but rather an escalation of uh, self-attack, which, of course, would have been layered into you because religions are all about attacking oh. self. Does that make any sense? Again, I don't want to lead oh. you down some place that's not valid, but tell me what you think. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you said it. Self-attack. An avalanche of self-attack. Our, our natural oh, self rises and, and loves and enjoys and, and is happy with the world. I see this in my daughter. And so to, to we, 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 that can't deflate. Right. Like when when we're when we're sick, you know, let's say we have an infection. It's not a lack of an immune system. It is the presence of bacteria or a virus that is attacking us. And it's the same thing with self-esteem. It's not that we lack it. It's that we're being attacked by ourselves by a sort of historical torture device that is almost always implanted when we're very young. But again, sorry to interrupt, please. I'll shut up now. You go ahead and tell me what you think. Yes. Um. Yeah, self-attack. I mean, before I encountered the FDR, I never focused ever, never, ever on on this notion of self-knowledge and 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 uh, this notion of self-attack and the possibility possibility that uh, it's not all my fault, uh, that the blame is not a hundred percent all on me uh, for 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 my childhood problems. And that's, and sorry to interrupt, but that, that's something that I, I noticed earlier uh, when you were talking about it, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but I think what you said was, I already wasted the first 22 years of my life. And of yeah. course, that indicates a kind of ownership that is completely irrational, right? I mean, I understand why you would feel that way, but uh, you know, if you're born into uh, such a destructive environment, it's not that you wasted the money. Like, no, sorry, it's not that you wasted the time or you wasted the years. You were born in prison. You didn't commit a crime and were imprisoned, right? Yes, exactly. And, and I just got to say this, Steph. Because I, I, like most men don't often don't believe this, okay? I, for for the longest time, I I thought there was no hope for me to to uh, to have a, 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 a any any entering of a happy life because I did not get any any benevolent affection from my family my parents I have zero I mean I have zero fond memories memories of my mom my mom. Playing with me, telling me bedtime stories, uh, walking with me down the street, or, or and doing anything. I mean, gosh, and, and you know what? I often get 
complaints uh, at farm work from uh, uh, less, much less so today because since FDR. I, I've been told many times that uh, um, I'm too gentle uh, um, with uh, the patients that I take care of. I, I my voice goes too much in a in a feminine uh, register. Okay, and this is another thing. I mean, I have always uh, felt uh, very feminine and extremely, extremely gentle, and so on. The other people. I mean, especially since I escaped from the cult, and and, and in the queer qu qu community, you may notice that among men, okay, it's like. Um, among men, there can be so robotic and unaffectionate, even though they have hardcore sex and all that. And but they, I mean, they don't kiss. It is so unaffectionate. It, 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 it's, it's insane. Yeah, I had, uh, as I mentioned, I had four gay guys and a lesbian as a roommate when I was going to yeah, I heard uh, do all my that. masters. Yes. And and yes, this this, this couple, uh, you know, they basically they had sex, they met, and then they went on a date. You know, it's like <laughs> the complete opposite of anything I would be used to. And um, there is there is of course a coldness and a physical utilization of strangers in the gay community, in certain aspects of the gay community, uh, where you know sex is is less intimate than a kiss, and uh, uh, that is um, uh, that is kind of tragic, you know, because we all have a very strong need. For affection, certainly Isabella will, will will choose cuddling over food uh, often, and and she is uh, very very physically affectionate and needs that. It's as important to her as food, and I don't think we ever uh, we ever lose that. So it is a real tragedy that there's more physical utility from other people's bodies than holding and kissing and that kind of affection. See, my father beat me, and my my uh, okay, we're six. Okay, one sister for. Five brothers. Okay, my father, you know, he dealt with uh, his irritation uh, of us with with his long leather belt. Okay, in the middle of the night, so he came down the stairs, you know, and he said, "If we were, if we were on our backs already," he said, "Turn over on your stomach," you know, and if we we were just too just a split second too slow, you know, he would hit us anyway. You know what, Steph, if I was going to see my father today, which he's no more, he died of uh, stomach and in, uh, intestinal uh, cancer in 98, um, which uh, I found out because my sister called me and, he, and she said, uh, oh, Richard, uh, your father is going to die in about two weeks. And I'm calling you if only because uh, we want to give him, uh, you, his uh Debt, uh, uh, debt certificate or right, yeah, that no. makes sense. yeah, and I mean, and I went, I don't know, you know, I mean, hindsight, if I knew FDR back then, I wouldn't have not have gone, okay, so so I went, uh, and you know, I had massive indifference when I've looked at him in his hospital bed, he lost like over 100 pounds, uh, because he lived on, on this earth to live to eat. For pleasure, as opposed to me, since the, the age of 22, I eat for the to live to uh, in optimal way. I eat to live in optimal way. 
Right. Nothing else. I hate to eat. I am never hungry, Steph. I've never been drunk in my life ever. Now, is that because uh, because the meals were associated with beatings? In and I'm get I'm just you understand. I'm so so sorry that this would be anything that anyone would experience, and it's just a terrifying thing to be beaten by somebody many times your size using what is in effect, you know, a belt that would be three or four times the size we would know now. I mean, it's completely terrifying. But is it is that your association the meal times with this kind of violence? Uh uh, I don't think so because I really think that I changed my uh, diet uh, because of um, uh, the Atkins diet, okay? Um, uh, okay. You know, high protein, low carbohydrates, more like a control carbohydrate diet as opposed to an out-of-control carbohydrate diet. And, and of course, I praise that to, to high heaven and so on. But of course, over the years, uh, just like Atkins, over the years, uh, you know, he added more antioxidants to like blueberries and and, uh, and the other uh, berries and sun, and more vegetables to uh, round out the diet, not just and you know, not just meat and and, and so on. Um, but that is basically it, okay. And of course, um, uh, Cooper uh, aerobics, the aerobics books in uh, 1972, uh, just called aerobics. And also combine the two. But uh, since then, I, you know, I've dropped uh, a lot of the aerobics, and I'm doing uh, weightlifting, uh, like you, like you say on your in your profile. All right. Um, since a few years ago, I find that that is even more uh, powerful because, like, beyond 35, 40 years of age, it's best. It's the best way to maintain muscle mass. Uh, oh, and to keep your weight level. down, right? Because the muscle mass is yeah. continually burning calories. Um, I um. I had uh, I was a bit sick this last week or a couple of weeks. I wasn't going to the gym and I, my my calorie intake dropped like forty percent. Like I just wasn't hungry. Uh, and then I went exactly. back to the gym this week and uh, now I'm all kinds of <laughs> hungry again. And it's it is the only way that I know of to to maintain weight. Um, given that I like to eat, uh, weightlifting is the only way that I know to to be able to uh, you know to to continue to weigh the same despite the slowdown of the aging process. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you understand that because unlike many other people, I find you so much fully integrated, fully integrated with the, the abstract, with the physical, the emotional, with the, um, with the other stuff. Uh, oh, he was going to say know? spiritual. That's fine with me. Yeah, yeah spiritual. <laughs> no, that's fine because we would use it in a different way, of course, than, than the people who raised you would. Like, uh, well, spe- being, it's talking about spiritual, um, I finally uh, starting uh, started back uh, putting on my dating profile online. Okay, for many years I just I just didn't feel I was worth uh, worth enough for anybody to 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 uh, to, to spend any time with me. Now, so, uh, so, sorry to interrupt you, but we drifted a little bit away, and that's fine. But uh, we drifted away from what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which was what yes, was the yes, things that Steph, led you to am, yeah, suicidality. Yes. Yes, Steph, I am so notorious for drifting away. Oh, so yeah, please. well, me too, right? We're like two, uh, two dandelions in a high wind here trying to hug, right? So let's, uh, let's get back to that aspect, if that's all right. Yes, yeah. yes. so uh, speaking of my father again, I remember my father, okay, all the time uh, when the weather would allow. And then, and he, he had meals at the tables, uh, especially um, lunch and, and supper. I mean, he dressed with tiny little micro shorts with and sandals, nothing else. No top at the dinner table. And even though you know, the whole cult is based is is much is very much based based on on 
avoidance of sex of any kind other than procreation. And, 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 and it, 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 I find that so ugly, you know, with his big, massive beer belly. It's just disgusting. I never had the, the courage to even suggest to him that, you know, put a shirt on, Dad. And of course, it's all in French, you know. Uh, I gotta be annoying and interrupt you again. Um, that would not be my definition of courage. Right, because you say, I, I did not have the courage to suggest to my, you know, as you say, brutal, sadistic, child-beating father that he should put a shirt on. Uh, th that's not courage any more than jumping into a lion's dash den while freshly marinated is courage. That's just foolhardiness, right? Right, to, to indicate that you were cowardly for not inviting a beating from a man larger than you uh, who had historically beaten you for many years, that to me is prudence and intelligence and cunning and wiles and smart. It is not a lack of courage. And this is the, I'm always, I'm always like, the, the, the language that we use to describe ourselves is the moral universe that we live in. And that's why I'm always bugging people to be very precise about their use of language with regards to themselves. The words that we use either hug us or hit us, right? And, uh, and uh, right, uh, who, who we are as, as people and how we judge ourselves is entirely bound up in the language that we use to describe ourselves. And to me, to, to describe yourself as having a single shred of deficiency in courage <laughs> when you escape from such a brutal cult it would be entirely misplaced, right? That you're one of the most courageous people who's ever shown up, uh, at least in this conversation. And to me, anything that you would say to yourself that would indicate any lack of courage uh, would be entirely unjust to the courage that you have shown uh, in this, uh, in, in your life and in your environment. So this is just what I uh, like to nag people about, if that makes any sense. Steph, you are so right. Uh, because for the longest time before... Uh, I discovered um, FDR. I had zero respect for the unconscious, okay? Because even though uh, neotech objectivism is, is so rational, they're still missing a big part. And this, and one of them is, uh, uh, like neotechs wrote that, uh, oh, dreams, yeah. Anything that has to do with dreams, it's just a, get this in quotation, a garbage disposal mechanism. So I always uh. have... I always uh, dismissed any and every dreams, uh, even so-called good dreams that I've ever had since since I escaped uh, the cult. Right, and and there are you can look on the BBC documentary recently, which was um, has got a quite a good scientific analysis of dreams that uh, that they are very specific learning and reinforcement devices that do aid in our knowledge and understanding of the outside world as well of, uh, as, of course, of the inside world. So the stuff that I've talked about for many years in terms of dreams uh, does have some, I mean, certainly now, does seem to be having some significant scientific backing, just to, you know, remind you that uh, reason and evidence always wins the day here uh, and uh, that dreams uh, are well worth looking at, uh, not just in terms of the, um, uh, the self-knowledge that you can get through the examination of the symbols, but there is some pretty objective and well-validated scientific evidence for the value and meaning of dreams. Okay. Um, can I bring up a dream that I have recurring often? 
You can bring it up if it's really complicated, just because I want to keep the show available to other people as well. Uh, if it's really, if it's a big, deep, and complicated oh, dream, oh, we'll do it. What? We'll I do totally it another time. That other people were uh, lined up, Steph. Okay, I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to call another day. Then I don't want to monopolize this. Well, so, uh, Richard, shoot me an email. I haven't done a dream analysis in a while, and I certainly would be be happy to help out. So uh, yes, just yes. Do, do do send me write down the dream and email it to me, and we'll set up a time to have a, a talk about it. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you so much again. Uh, I'll for see you at the barbecue. I'll see you at the barbecue. And it was really, really nice to, to chat with you. And again, congratulations on uh, A, getting out of the, um, the cult, B, uh, building a life for yourself, C, avoiding the ultimate self-attack of suicide. And uh, we're very, very, I'm certainly very glad to have you as, as part of this philosophical conversation. And congratulations so much on getting into therapy. I know that that's a huge and difficult step. And, uh, you know, and I love it. <laughs> it is. It is. And to, yes. you, you get the right therapist. You put the right work in. There's nothing yes. that can beat it in terms of excitement and happiness. But until you do it, it's hard to explain exactly how and why. So congratulations. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. All right. We have um, uh, two people with French surnames and strange accents uh, are done. And so we can introduce somebody else with a non-strange accent. Uh, if you have questions, issues, comments, or problems, anything you would like to comment on, open thy larynx, and I open my ears. If uh, no one has anything, we'll go back to uh, Richard's stream. Well, um... I have something kind of new, an idea. All right. Uh, uh, I was wondering if I could, uh, you could step into a role of uh, of the priest. Oh, I was going to do Candy Apples, the milkmaid, uh, but uh, oh. okay, we could uh, we can try the priest thing too. And <laughs> um. I just I I listened to your Christine and the priest again. I hadn't heard it in quite a while, and I went back to it just to remind. What you're myself. really saying is, Steph, for Christ's sake, put out some new podcasts. I actually have six in the pipeline, so sorry about the delays. I had some time on some during the, to and from New Hampshire, but uh, they'll be coming out uh, later today or early tomorrow. Well, it's giving me time to catch up on other things. So, um, um, you had this argument, and maybe you could start there that. Um, I felt some degree of frustration trying to figure out how I would respond to that because it was um it was it was about um how oh well we know that these people aren't um believers in in God because they aren't happy and the 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 reason why they're not happy is because they don't. They don't have enough faith, or they don't—they don't believe enough. Are you—are you remembering that? Um, I'm sure that uh, it would be pretty easy to summon more details. I said, i mean, I think we've all heard that argument before—that that, uh, that uh, you know, a certain belief will make you happy, and if you try believing in it and it doesn't make you happy, it's because you don't believe believe hard enough, right? Right. Right. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with that. Uh, well, it's an argument from effect, right? And also, it's an unverifiable argument from effect. Uh, we talked about. Boy, this is going way back to one of my first conversations with 
uh, Ricky the Magnificent, uh, who grew up in um, Jehovah's Witness uh, cult, right. uh, that uh, because he's uh, uh, attractive, if not downright sexy, uh, uh, that uh, when he was a teenager, and, and his sister is, is, uh, is very pretty, yeah, she looks very much like Christina Aguilera. Let me finish the sentence, sweetie. <laughs> she doesn't look as good as you. I mean, she's only mortal, darling. Anyway, uh, so, so as two attractive, uh, uh, I guess, kids and teenagers, they would be trotted out as advertisements. And you, of course, know all of the pictures of the, you know, the Christian families with the smiling dad and the beaming, eyes-terrified <laughs> wife and the sort of uh, empty, cheesy smiles on the ch uh, children and so on, that there is an advertisement of happiness that uh, comes out of uh, particular groups. And um, uh, saying that this belief will make you happy uh, is, of course, whether the belief makes you happy does not mean that the belief is, is true, right? I mean, because heroin will make you happy as well, that doesn't mean that heroin is a philosophy. And there's a kind of happiness that comes from giving up the struggle for truth, giving up the struggle for authenticity and identity. There is a, a relief that comes out of that, that people, a euphoria of giving up the struggle for independence, uh, integrity, uh, true original thought, being who you really are, that is, as we all know, that is a great struggle to achieve. And once you've achieved it, it becomes a great joy to possess and to grow with. But it's a hell of a struggle to achieve that and to give up climbing the mountain over to the true self and then to collapse into the foggy, stifling... <laughs> yet uh, syrupy, smooth arms of some sort of collective identity gives people an, an enormous amount of relief. And, of course, what people pay priests for and politicians for is the, is, is the cessation of the struggle for identity. They, they're paying to avoid the necessity of identity. And as I talked about uh, in some recent videos, the selling of a prefabricated identity of, of, of every kind of collectivist kind, whether it's religion or nationalism or uh, even uh, ethnic or racial or cultural or whatever, the selling of a prefabricated identity is often grabbed with extraordinary gusto and almost, well, and not almost, but desperation by people who are desperate to avoid the challenges of uh, outgrowing the stereotypes and bigotries of inherited histories. And so when people say, uh, you know, I, I, and I remember talking to some woman on a plane that was going to Hawaii and, and she was saying, oh, you know, I, I live this life of drugs and, and sleeping around and, you know, drinking and so on. And then I found, you know, Jesus and everything became better and so on, right? Just trade one addiction for another, right? And uh, it's hard to say which would be worse on your kids. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, so when people say, well, you know, I found religion, I was born again, and I gained a great deal of joy. What they're saying, in my opinion, is, well, when I was thinking things through for, when I, when I was sort of operating just on traumatized history, when I was PTS, when a PTSD victim, I was making bad decisions or no decisions, and then when I surrendered into a kind of collective identity, I began to make, quote, better decisions. In other words, decisions were made for me. Both of those are avoidances of responsibility and the challenges of developing a true identity in uh, the face of the hostility that the world has towards authenticity as a reminder of a cowardly surrender to the collective. So there's that kind of happiness that people get, the relief from having to be who they actually are and think for themselves, 
And of course, that is really an argument for the falseness of a belief, not the truth of a belief. And uh, uh, so, and, and so that's the first challenge, right? Happiness doesn't prove anything. And uh, happiness, claims of happiness don't even prove happiness, right? I mean, someone what can say that they're happy. That? They can be a very polished sociopath and very much appear happy to the uneducated or the untutored or those who are avoiding their own instincts. So happiness doesn't prove the truth of any proposition. And uh, uh, even if the happiness is genuine and a claim of happiness in no way proves that, that happiness is real. So um, saying that, you know, God or religion makes you happy uh, doesn't have anything to do with the existence of God, right? And uh, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual existence of happiness, because that is a self-reporting, which is the problem that all psychology suffers from, is the problem of self-reporting, at least stuff where they can't directly peer into the brain. Does that, does that help at all? Right, it's kind of a non-sequitur type of thing. I, I'm happy, therefore God exists type of thing. Yeah, and uh, you, you could perhaps make the argument that a belief in God gives people some relief. And it does, right? I mean, clearly it's not, uh, you know, uh, there's no drug that only makes you feel worse, right? Other than chemotherapy, which is not particularly sold on the streets as an instant high. So right. heroin has the genuine properties of making you very happy, as does cocaine, uh, in the short run. And the same thing is true when you give up the struggle for knowledge and you just accept bigoted superstition and a collective identity. Well, there's a huge relief in that for many, many people. And the, the price you pay, well, it's really the price your children pay, but the price that you pay doesn't show up for many, many years. And uh, uh, then what happens is by that time you're so embedded that you start to feel less uh, comfortable in that collective identity and you start to feel that your life is draining away and you aren't who you are and you get kind of depressed and, and but then of course what the priests say is that you know it's because you don't believe hard enough and you get that kind of prop up to you know it's like well what the hell do I have to say to get you to keep donating right that's uh, <laughs> but you, you keep giving me your tithe or whatever that's uh, a different situation but I don't believe uh, I don't believe that mysticism makes people happy I do believe that it gives them relief uh, like heroin from the challenges of personal truth and integrity and virtue, but uh, I certainly don't believe that illusions lead to genuine uh, happiness. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I struggle with the the religion side of things more more so than the um. I mean the the as far as um being on the atheist side of the debate down here in the Bible Belt, because it's just <laughs> religion is just so um thick down here um <laughs> yeah in in many know, senses of the word but go on another reason why i need to move out of here or something but um yeah if you can if you can get out of the south and particularly out of texas you know i was watching uh, the oliver stone film w the other day uh, i brought it up thinking that it was uh, how to teach letters of the alphabet to Isabella, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't it's like malcolm the 10th but um uh it's interesting because i've i've heard this from george bush before, you know, like if it wasn't for being born again, I'd be sitting on a bar stool in Texas having a beer, right? Because I guess he gave up drinking or whatever. And uh, oh, right. I'm sure that there are a couple of hundred thousand Iraqis staring lifelessly at the sky through the earth and worms who would be more than happy if uh, our friend W had not discovered religion. Uh, and if he just remained a minor barroom drunk, then hundreds of thousands of people would still be alive today. Uh, so that's not to me much of an argument for religion, but rather against it. An argument against it. <laughs> and of course he'd be in the bar room because um, 
that would be just a different um, short-term relief. Right, but at least one that doesn't start wars. Right. And I kind of, I did a podcast myself the other day just on this. The, I, I kind of reasoned myself in under, to, to realize that religion is, is not only like drugs, but um, like heroin, but significantly 10,000 times. I mean, if, if George Bush had gotten into heroin, they'd still be alive, you know. So it's, it's significantly more destructive than, than drugs. Well, as you can, I'm sure, understand psychologically, by, getting, by becoming born again, uh, George Bush did not solve his destructive streak. He merely turned it outwards and amplified it, which is always the case. When we turn self-hatred outwards, it always gets amplified. A thousand people have to pay for every prior self-attack upon ourselves. Uh, so uh, it does not solve the problem of... Uh, of uh, destruction and violence, which is what he was acting out ahead of time, uh, because he was, you know, beaten and screamed at by his mother, tortured frogs like any genuine sociopath. But uh, when we turn our aggressions outwards, particularly when we hook them up with this fantasy, magical divinity and omniscience, uh, this is where we do get, you know, terrorism and wars and so on. It's not solved the problem of destruction; it merely inflicts it upon other innocents, right? Uh, and that is the, the real shame of it. Right, and um, while I was listening, I I did notice that you you made your arguments just as the priest um, were really good arguments. If if all of these things um, that you were arguing for were projected inward and not outward, if they were about your inner self and about your um, unconscious, if you replaced God with unconscious, then a lot of the arguments you were making. It would have been very useful. Right. And I mean, prayer works insofar as you ask an omniscient entity and you get an answer, but the omniscient entity is your unconscious. And I use, use the word omniscient somewhat loosely there. But um, that argument is, uh, the argument that I made in that, I think it's podcast 300, is, is really identical to the arguments that were going on in the uh, second boot camp with about, about the social contract. And um, it's, a, it, it's simply weird. a switch in definitions, right? So... Um, Christina was quite upset. <laughs> uh, with, the, with podcast 300, I would say God exists, and Christina would then say, well, would prove that God does not exist. And then I would say, it's a matter of faith, right? And right, go these, ask God. The, yeah, these two are completely opposite arguments, right? If I have a belief in God because God objectively exists, then it's not faith, it's science, right? I mean, I have a belief that the world is round because the world is round, not because it doesn't take faith, right? It, it, it's an acceptance of the evidence. And um, uh, in, in that uh, podcast, I would say, God, you know, I believe in God because God exists and God would be disproven. And then I would say, well, it's a matter of faith, right? Uh, and of course, faith is the belief in the exact opposite of that, which is true, right? It's a redefinition of error as truth. And uh, then when Christina would attack faith as bigotry and so on, then I would go back to God existing. It's just a spin, right? In the same way that when it comes to democracy or, or statism, people will say that um, we are responsible for obeying the social contract because we enter into it or stay in it voluntarily. And then, so then it's like a contract. It's voluntary. And then we point out that if it's voluntary, we should be allowed to disagree with it. And then the gun in the room comes out and people say, well, no, it's... It's forced. And then when we focus on the force and say, well, the initiation of the use of force is unjust, then they switch back to it being voluntary, right? In other words, you stay, therefore you agree. 
And this is the, it is a constant switch. And if you look at all perennial arguments, and this one, of course, social contracts been going on for 3,000 years. If you look at all perennial arguments, faith and reason, social contract, and, and lots of other ones, you will always see that there's just rotating definitions. You know, that uh, um, if you say that uh, the social contract is enforced, you're told that it's voluntary. And then if you say, well, okay, I'm going to treat it like it's voluntary and not obey it, then you're told that you have to obey it because it's forceful. And then when you point out the force is immoral, you're told, no, it's voluntary because you stay. Right? So you, you can just, it, it's very simple, these rotating definitions that occur. I believe in God because God exists. Well, God doesn't exist. No, 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 I believe in God because it's a matter of faith. Right? And so you can't really debate these people, I guess, because I I'm, I'm keep trying to, like, how, how do I, you know grasp these slippery eels of, of these people that, that that constantly redefine their terms in their debates. Well, and, of do you like them as people? No, I can't say I'd have any respect for them after they keep redefining. Well, don't debate with people you don't like. Right. 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 I mean, that's why I stopped the determinism nonsense. Right? I just lost all respect. It's like I'm not doing this anymore because I know that I can't have a productive conversation with people that I don't like. I can't. Yeah, they won't get anything. I'm just wasting my time. I'm discrediting philosophy. I could be talking to somebody more enjoyable or beating my head against a wall, which would be still more enjoyable. Uh, so check your own feelings. Do I like this person? See, the truth, the truth is a massive gift that we can bestow upon another human being, right? It's a cure for the cancer of unhappiness and loneliness, self-attack. The truth is a massive gift, right? Now, if you have a Ferrari that you want to give to someone, and they're like, well, I don't drive because it's bad for the environment. Do you sit there and say, no, 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 you really have to take this Ferrari. Do you sit there and keep trying to press the key into their hand and tell them that a Ferrari is good and this and that, right? If you have someone who's dying of cancer and you have a pill that cures cancer, and they sit there and say, I don't want to take your pill. And there's a whole city full of other people who are dying of cancer who want to get better. Do you sit there not giving the pill to other people because you're going to fight with this guy to try and get a pill down his throat as he bites you? Fuck him. <laughs> Go to right. somebody who wants the pill. It's getting easier to drop these kind of people out. It's just, it's still, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to just, just give up on... It gets easier. It's just not easy. <laughs> well, but that's because you're being selfish. Because it's about your feelings, right? Right. It's about... Right, it's about me in some way, for sure. I'm sorry? It's about me for some, in some way. Um, yeah, I, you're, I not thinking of, you're not to... thinking of the people you could be helping, right? You're thinking, well, I, I don't feel comfortable giving up on this person. You're also not thinking of the degree of respect that you and this other person are going to give to the truth, right? If you try to apply recent arguments and evidence to people who are irrational, or rather anti-rational, since you can't be irrational, who, people who are anti-rational, then you're just joining them in, in their anti-rationality, right? Because you're saying that I can reason people into beliefs, sorry, I can reason people into the truth despite the fact that they directly oppose and discredit reason. Yeah, that's that's the contradiction there. Yeah, so you're uh, you you you're discrediting and weakening your own 
uh, efficacy and sense of power you're discrediting and weakening uh, the power of philosophy to yourself, to others, to anyone who knows about this conversation, and you're not uh, getting the truth to people who actually have an interest in improving their own lives and learning how to think for themselves and so on, right? Right. Because it's about you and your feelings, right? Well, is is there another – because you know if, if these people are really slippery like that, then it's got to be something else. It's got to be something in their history. I guess – even then, there's yeah, not then, really but a see, way to But that's easy. That. Then bring up their history and see if they're interested. And if they're not, if they're, if they're, neither, irrational nor in, if they're neither rational nor introspective, there's nothing you can do because all they're going to do is manipulate and project, right? right? Right. There's a guy I know I used to work with, and uh, he actually got me on the volleyball team where I ended up meeting Christina, so all hail to him. But uh, he was married... Um, and uh, I had a kid, and uh, he was having big problems in his marriage. And he took his wife to marriage counseling. She didn't want to go, but she ended up going because things were going very badly. And uh, after about 40 minutes uh, of talking with this guy and his wife, his uh, therapist said, uh, you know, well, uh, if you could just say to the wife, you could just wait outside for a few minutes. I just have something I need to discuss with your husband. And so she went outside. And the therapist came up to him and said, uh, are you happy with her the way she is? He said, no. He said, well, then you've got to make a decision because I'm telling you, as a professional, she's not going to change. Wow. 40 minutes, right? How long have we been at this? How long have you been at philosophy? Three years. Yeah, and you were probably interested in, in, these, uh, in science and thinking and stuff beforehand, right? Yeah. So... Uh, you're now a professional, right? Right. That's that's kind of there's a yeah there's a bit of despair around that, like um, let's see if I can sort of reason you into this because <laughs> I can't seem to reason myself out of it. So um, yeah, yeah. Give me the case. Tell me, tell me how we should uh, spend time on these people. I'm I'm happy to hear. Maybe I'm wrong, right? Let's go for it. Well, not so much that I should spend time with these people, but that it's um, reason you into the fact that I I think that it's it's bleak. Um, that uh, sorry, I will what's run bleak? into the the outlook is bleak as far as running into people that um, are like me. And like us, like uh, all hardcore into the into the truth and and. Well, you know, sorry, um, if you're still uh, debating with if you're still debating with people who are anti-rational, you're not hardcore into the truth, right? Because the truth is, you can't debate with people who are anti-rational. So you're not yet hardcore into the truth if you still want to debate with people who. That's just a point, right? It's a minor point that I want to make. So, and of course, your odds of running into a rational person. If you're spending your time debating, quote, debating with anti-rational people, uh, you're, the odds of you running into another rational person are that much less because you're hanging with the wrong crowd, right? Right. I'm not, I'm not helping matters in, in that. Uh, no, you're, you're, actively, I think once, you're actively hurting matters, right? Like, I mean, right. if you're stabbing yourself in the leg, you're, you don't say, well, I'm not actually helping my health, right? No, you're, you're actively hurting your health, right? And the disaster scenario that I have that has me clinging to this this um um with my my last pinky finger 
to this uh, flagpole, I guess, of, uh, of, of trying to change people that obviously won't change is that, um, is that so few people want to change that I'll never run into anyone that won't change. Uh, sorry, could you just step me through the logic of that? It seems like a bit of a tautology, um, but um, maybe I've got it wrong. Well, if if the world is in the state it's in, and and everybody has um, been raised badly, and most people out there support the state, and they they're they're fairly at least um, into the religious tolerance, if not semi-religious in some way. Um, they're raised in state schools. I mean, the vast majority of them, those that aren't are in private Catholic schools or something like that, which isn't any better. Um, if, if that is the majority, the vast majority of people in the world, then um, the, out, the outlook's not so good at running into anybody in my day-to-day -day activities that wouldn't be anti-rational or um, big into the rationality and that the somewhat, um, what, like, I mean, how many people are, are there of us that have um, been really into the conversation, maybe like what, 50, 60 that are, that are highly involved, you know, in, in well, okay, but let's, let's, let's just I mean, take, take, I don't want to get too much information before we look at some principles. So what you're saying is that these people are rare, but they're not, there's not none of them, right? Right. They're just, they are so rare that, I mean, even the age range of, of all of us, I mean, we got we got the oldest as is forty or forty one and the youngest is is eighteen or so, so the age range is quite vast the um the where we live is no is no quite look, you don't you don't have to make, look you don't have to make the case for me i mean I understand right uh, right. So, so I mean, let, let's say that these people uh you know people who want to think and reason and they're, they're very rare i'm I'm not going to um, I'm not going to say that that's completely accurate because I have a different view than you do, right? As sort of the the hub of the wheel, so to speak. But um, but let's say that they're very rare, right? Right. So uh, let's let's compare them to diamonds, right? Okay. And uh, if you know anything about diamond mining, which I doubt you do, I just know because my dad's a geologist, um, and I've visited a bunch of them in Africa. Um, the amount of excavation that you have to do to find a diamond is staggering. It's it's millions to one in terms of you know weight or whatever, right? You have to do two tons of earth to get three diamonds or whatever, right? Right, and well, I thought your um, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, X-ray glasses metaphor was really good. <laughs> oh, thanks, but I'm going to change it now because <laughs> okay. And a new metaphor for an old idea is all I've got left right. in terms of originality since I became a dad. So I'm afraid this is all I've got left. Um, all right, I'll let you. Okay. So it, it, what you're doing is, is uh, if I come to you and I say, 
uh, I want you, Nate, to invest in, you know, Steph's house of mining for diamonds, right? That's my company, right? Okay. And my, my, because diamonds are so incredibly rare, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get one acre of land. I'm going to start looking for diamonds in the topsoil. And when I've finished, um, I'm going to go back and start again on the same acre. And I'm going to do that over and over again until I find a diamond. What would you say to that business plan? That's highly inefficient. Well, would you invest? No. Okay. Uh, why not? Well, because uh, it's only one acre, and <laughs> I'm not even sure if the, the methodology would, you'd be going through first even would be very uh, efficient. I mean, right. What you would say to me is, hey, look, I mean, if you find five diamonds in that one acre, fantastic, but it's not reproducible, and the odds are you'll never find anything, right? Right. Okay. So because diamonds are so incredibly rare, there's no point looking someplace you've already looked before. Right. Do you see what I mean? I can see what you mean. I just can't seem to translate that to... Okay, diamonds uh, irrationality, right? Right. So if you've talked to someone who is anti-rational, and you've talked I to them a couple of times, you've given reason and evidence, and you just get back hostility or negativity or whatever, right? Disinterest. Then move on quickly. <laughs> right. Then you've already looked at that acre, right? And there's no diamond. Right. So what's the point of going back and looking again? I'll... Try debating from a different angle. I'll try starting from this end instead of this end of the one acre and see if I can find a diamond. Now, maybe it's true that you missed one. Maybe. But nobody would take that as a business plan, right? I'll go back for a fifth time because maybe there is a diamond in that one acre of topsoil. I just missed it. Yes, maybe there is, but that's not a good business plan for finding that which you say is very rare, right? Okay, but let's let's add a new um, aspect to the metaphor because this is this is true in many ways. Um, acres of land are also rarely come upon that are for sale. You or mean for, you mean uh, dating, right? Not even dating so much. Just <laughs> I'm even having this problem with friends. <laughs> I mean, I I you know women in in the. Texas area, at least, or, or just... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, they're I'm held hostage by the up. church. I understand that, right? Yeah. So then you're I, saying, I, okay, I, I'm looking for diamonds, and I'm on a glacier. So what's the next thing to do? <laughs> Get off the glacier. Get off the freaking glacier, because <laughs> then the diamond's there, right? I mean, you're in the heart of nationalistic, patriotic, religious country, right? Yeah. Yeah, the old king of the hill thing. Uh, now, there may be a diamond in a glacier, but nobody's going to make that a business plan, right? No. No, I need to get out of the glacier. You're no, right. you don't need to move, right? Just understand that it's really, really rare to find a diamond where you are. Now, that doesn't mean you have to move, but it does mean that there's even less point combing over the same ground you've already looked at, right? Right. I mean, if you... Let's switch the metaphors, right? If you want to look for pearls, 
in oysters, right? Pearls are these little, you get a grain of sand goes into an oyster shell that creates this coating around it to protect it from the rough edges. You get this beautiful pearl, right? So if you want to look for pearls, the way that they do it is they have to yank up the pearls from the ground, from below the ocean, uh, ocean floor, and then they have to open up the oysters, right? Find the pearls. I think that's how it works. Right. Now, they don't check the oysters they've already checked, right? To see if maybe they missed a pearl. No. And of course, what they really want is a pinpoint x-ray so that they only pull up the oysters that have the pearls, right? Yes. Now, the first thing you do with philosophy is you open up the pearls, you open up the oysters to see if there's a pearl, right? You talk to someone to see if they have any curiosity about rationality and introspection, right? Right. Well, I'm with you so far. Right. And then the next thing that you do after that is you develop, after a certain amount of habit, you develop the x-ray vision so that you know whether or not someone has, uh, whether an oyster has a pearl before you even open it up. But basically what you've got is you've got 20 oysters, you keep opening them up and checking, closing them, opening them up and checking, right? Saying, man, oysters with pearls are really rare. And it's like, well, of course they're rare because you keep doing the same ones. For you, they're yeah. non-existent. Yeah, so pretty, you're yeah. asking people to be more rational than you are. And that's completely irrational, right? Oh, rationality is so tragically absent in the world, right? And saying, well, pearls are so tragically absent in these oysters, I'm going to open these 20 up again and see if I miss something. Okay, I'm going to open these 20 up again and see if I miss something again. Boy, you know, <laughs> that's just a short of right? But you need to be rational to both attract and see rationality in other people, right? You're right. I just need to let go. Well, and complaining about the irrationality in the world without seeing the irrationality in yourself isn't going to do you much good, right? No. No, and this, this definitely helps with this, this constant talk that's going on in my head about this. Because... <laughs> I've been I've been uh, debating this in my head for a long time. Debating what? Just the uh, the argument I gave you that that these people are rare and you know yeah I think this is very very helpful. Yeah, the the fault is not in the stars but in ourselves, right? To quote Hamlet. Right. Right? Um, once you it's, are it's, as shiningly rational as you can possibly be, and you can't find any rational people where you are or anywhere else, then I think you have the right to complain. I don't have that right because I'm still not as shining rational as I'd like to be. But if you get there, then I think you have, like if you, if you have the x-ray vision and you can see all the oysters in the ocean and that you can know for sure that there are no pearls, then you can say, gosh, there are no pearls in the ocean, right? That would be... Okay, so when I get to that point, uh, then I can complain about this. Yes, but you won't get to that point. Because the more rational you become, the more you will attract or evoke rational people. 
Because what you're saying right now, to anyone who may be interested in rationality, Nate, is rationality makes you lonely and bitter and negative. Want to join? Yeah. I guess that's not too uh, attractive. Well, no. It's not at all attractive. <laughs> God, you're fogging me like crazy today. <laughs> Sorry about that. The Swiss. Um, yeah, I think I'm just I'm just scared. So that's. Um, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared of being accepting the the that that. I can't quite pinpoint what I'm scared of. Well, what I'm saying is pretty obvious, right? Right. I mean, like, what you're join, saying is join that me I... in the Church of Misery is not the best <laughs> slogan, right? Right. And also that that I I'm trying the same thing over and over is like the definition of insanity. So, well, it just it's... means that you're attempting to achieve something else, right? Right. Right. So, or avoid something. Well, it just means that you're um you have a great deal of anxiety around enthusiasm, right? Which is why you're having a tough time disengaging from people who bring you despair, right? Yeah, I had a, a someone the other day. I, I I mentioned that you know I I um I, I was interested in someone else and and that I, I um I had some concerns, you know, about some red flags I saw, and then, and she says, um, well, you can't avoid disaster, or something, you know, just, just kind of came out of nowhere with some kind of assertion like that, like, you can't avoid anything. Like, I, if I cross the street, I can't look both ways and avoid a car, getting hit by a car, so therefore, you know, I can't avoid <laughs> relationships that are going to turn out disastrous, and it was just really... And who was this who said this? Sorry, I'm just an old friend on Facebook that I had made some comment on my status message and, you know. Okay. And um, what did you do as the result of her saying that? Well, I just ended the conversation. I, I didn't talk to her after that. Why? Well, because... What, what can I say to that? You know, I'm, she wasn't curious at all. I mean, she wasn't saying, well, why do you say that? You know? I'm she sorry, did you feel that you were being curious by not continuing the conversation? Um. Oh, wait, sorry. RTR plus UPB means everyone except Nate has to be curious. Sorry, I, I forgot to put that in the footnotes. Uh, it's the Nate exception, uh, which is very important. It will absolutely be in the next edition. I do apologize for that massive oversight on my part. In the moment, I wasn't sure how I could be curious about like because I just felt anxiety. Right, and what does I, RTR suggest in that situation? I feel anxiety when you said that, and I don't know why. And I feel anxious about even bringing this up. See, once you do it, you get the right to complain about other people not doing it. But frankly, it doesn't seem very credible for me for you to complain about other people's lack of curiosity when you're not willing to be open and honest and vulnerable with them. With all due respect, right? I mean. 
Right. But I, I realized later that I could have been curious by asking, you know, how do you know? Well, that's, but that's not RTR. What you felt was anxiety, right? And right. so questioning her on her motives, or this, that's not RTR, right? Right. And this is not to pick on you, because this is a general question. This is a podcast that's coming out this week, which is how often do you refer to principles when making decisions, right? And uh, I, I get a sense that a lot of people have listened to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books, but they don't particularly refer to principles when trying to make decisions. It's like, well, that was interesting. I've read a lot of science. Now I'm going to throw a bridge together any way I feel like it, right? I studied engineering. Now I'm just going to build it the way I feel like it. And the purpose, of course, of philosophy is to have principles that you can reference when making decisions, right? So when you're faced with a decision where a friend does something that hurts you, then do you reference a principle when deciding what to do in that, or do you just do what you feel like? Um, I, I kind of thought that I was kind of going with my gut when I didn't respond. Well, gut is not a principle, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm all for the instincts, for sure, but the instincts in the absence of philosophy usually just remain prejudice, right? Right. So when you had this, uh, as you say, she's an old friend, so I assume the relationship has some value and that she's worthy of your time, and she was certainly worth talking to about this kind of stuff, right? Right. So... When it comes to measuring the value or discussing the value of curiosity, is that a principle that you reference when something comes up like this? Right? Is honesty, openness, and vulnerability, or what we many <laughs> somewhat succinctly call RTR, is that a principle that you use to guide yourself in situations where you want to withdraw or you feel offended or you feel like not talking? In other words, do you read diet books and then just eat whatever the hell you want, or do you, you know, read diet books Sometimes. and then modify your, right? Because I tell you, it's been a long time, Nate, since I've heard you talk about applying a principle in a situation. I've heard a lot of complaints about situations not going your way or things not going the way that you like and so on, but I've not heard, basically what I've heard is, you saying, well, I'm not applying any of the diet principles, but I'm really mad that I'm not losing weight or in gaining weight, right? Yeah, and I definitely didn't apply it in this, this particular instance either. Right, and so, and I, again, I don't want to be overly harsh. I mean, this is just what I've observed, right? I mean, again, I have this weird view. <laughs> I have Soren's eye on <laughs> everything, right? Um, and, and this is just what I've observed, is you've complained a lot about things, but I have not heard you saying, you know, uh, this principle that I believe in, whether it's RTR or UPB or something else completely outside of whatever the hell we're talking about here, you know, I have this principle called honesty, called integrity, called courage, called virtue, called whatever it is, and it was really tough to apply in this situation, but I did it, and, he and here's the result. Well, I can give you an example. Please do. <laughs> um, the other day, I, I you know, I wrote on the board about this self-attack situation. I talked to you briefly about it and about the sprinkler that I left on. And um, me and Joey had talked about it uh, um, 
to some degree. And then I went and talked to my therapist about it, and she tended to agree with Joey. And and so um, that I was just setting standards. Um, well, not really standards, but um, I think you have had called them excuses to self-abuse. Um, just <laughs> I need to sort of lower my uh, expectations to you know being human. And... No, no, and I understand that, and and I, I I do appreciate that, and I don't want to dismiss that completely. But that's a situation where you were already experiencing discomfort and you wanted relief from that discomfort, right? Right. That's different from what I'm talking about. Where you will willingly accept an increase in discomfort for the sake of pursuing a principle or acting with integrity to your values. Oh, okay. Um... It's the difference between how do I get out of a burning building and help me go back into a burning building to rescue a cat called Virtue, <laughs> right? Or something like that. Right. I'm trying to think of a recent thing. Like we, we have this, and again, and you've become an example of this, and it's not fair, right? But, you know, we're just going to use you as a, a teaching aid to be, you know, this is unfair, but, but just bear with me for a second, right? Is, is that, you know, what we do is we try to develop principles that we can apply, and, and we certainly have worked on a very practical philosophy that is around action in the moment, right? Honesty, openness, virtue, courage, and all these kinds of actionable virtues, right? Right. And just kind of what I've noticed, and this is just annoying, naggy guy, and again, I'm not certainly saying that I do it all perfectly uh, at any particular time, but is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of dedication to the virtues that we've talked about here. The, like people say, oh, well, you know, I've read them and I've absorbed them and so on. But there's not a lot of people saying, well, here's the standard or the virtue that I believe in, whatever it is, honesty, integrity, vulnerability. And here's a situation where it was difficult to do, but I did it. And here was the result, right? Either... I changed my mind about the virtue or I learned more about this or whatever. It's not everyone, right? But I've just sort of noticed that there seems to have been a bit of a falling away from the abstract, the application of the abstract virtues that we all in general agree with, right? Right. What would it look like? And I, I don't know if this question is going to be annoying or, or not, but... It's only fair that you be annoying. I, I often am, so <laughs> go for it. Uh, what would it look like if... What would you expect to see if I were to um, apply these things more consistently or more often or um, use the principles in the diet book to actually put them into action? What... What would you expect to see? Because, you know, I haven't posted a lot on the board and I haven't, um, that's why I, I don't know what kind of updates you would expect to see. In well, what I would expect to see is I wouldn't expect to hear you complain about the rarity of rational people while pursuing irrational goals yourself. Oh, okay. That would be sort of one, one thing. So you would expect uh, not to see certain things. Sorry? So you would, you would expect not to see certain things like that. Well, but when you don't pursue irrational goals, you're obviously pursuing rational goals, in which case you're going to be happier, right? Right. I mean, not, not 
immediately, but you know, you will be working on becoming happier, right? The other thing that I would expect to see, particularly from you, is more positivity, right? More enthusiasm, more happiness, more acceptance of success, more, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Because you've not been positive for the last couple of months, to say the least, right? Well, I've, I've felt more positive, well, mm -hmm. off and on, I guess. Well, and, and if other people have experienced that in a way that I haven't, feel free to type in the chat window. And again, this is not pile on Nate session. This is just you asked, right? So I'm just trying to give you my, my honest response. Um, it, when you had this conflict with your old friend, right? And friendship is a very, very important aspect of life. Uh, when you had this conflict with your old friend, I would assume that you would have said, well, uh, this is a friend who's done something that has hurt and upset me. So I'm going to talk with my friend about what has hurt and upset me. Rather than, well, I just stopped the conversation, right? Right. Um, when it came to finding more rational people uh, in my life, like if you say, well, I, I'm spending a lot of time debating with irrational people or anti-rational people, and I feel despair over the number of anti-rational people in my life, that would be such an obvious contradiction that it would be hard to take seriously, right? Okay. Um, and I'm not saying that any of this is easy, right? But, of course, we need principles because things aren't easy, right? Yeah, that's... Like, we, we don't need... Uh, uh, we don't need a GPS to walk around our house because it's easy. Right? If I'm driving to New Hampshire, thanks again, Greg, I need a GPS because it's a, it's a long, complicated drive with a baby in the car, right? We need principles when things are tough, right? Not when well, we don't need a diet to eat chocolate cake. Right? Well, let's say, um, let's bring up, let's just, um, the example you gave uh, about the guy that you were debating, uh, the, the relativist, I think, at the table and... and New Hampshire. Um, when you stop debating him, or, or uh, like how, how you you gave him a, a fair amount of time, I guess you had a, a this conversation, and at some point you gave up and decided, well, it's just it's not worth continuing. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I gave him, I, I knocked down every one of his arguments for relativism. And then basically he just looked at me and said, well, I'm going to have to think about it, right? And, you know, give, give the guy the good grace of a civilized exit, right? Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but I certainly didn't want to press the point then. Right, so when somebody comes at me with, like, a blatant assertion about something and, um, and isn't, it doesn't show any curiosity that I've seen, then why would I continue talking to him? Well, why do you? Um, well, I, I didn't. Sorry, I thought that we started this by you saying that you continued to talk with irrational people. Maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. Well, well, I didn't continue talking to her. No, no, we're not talking about people. We're talking about trend, right? Okay, yeah. let's start again. Do you have a problem with having anti-rational people in your life or in your conversations? 
Oh, okay. Okay, so, yeah. You do. Only in that I keep running into new anti-rational people. Okay, and, and having do, these, to... do these new anti-rational... Do you, do you have more than one conversation with these people? Or do you have... I mean, do they get embedded? I mean, or do you just meet people who are uh, anti-rational? I just keep meeting people who are anti-rational, and then I just, then I just stop. And do you care about their the best potential within them? Do you love what is possible about who they could be? Or do you feel resentful and irritated that they're irrational? I would say the latter. I would say so too, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that that's kind of robbing them a little. Because they they could change if it's not it's not their fault that they're irrational. The culture is irrational, right? Right, but if they're not, I mean, you're asking them to love the potential for reason in themselves, but you can't love the potential for reason in them. You're asking them to do something that you're doing the opposite of. Right. Be enthusiastic about rationality, you say to them, right? But you're not enthusiastic about their possibility for rationality. No, I, I, I'm not. I, I think that there's no chance or, or there's no... How, how do I change them? How do I make somebody curious? You can't. Right, and that's why you were negative about my speech, right? Because in my speech, I showed that when you approach a room of 350 or 400 people with enough positivity, you can get an enthusiastic response, even though I would disagree with many of those people about many things. Well, you definitely proved that. Right. So that means that if you want to help people, and in so doing, create a rational and happy circle of people in your life, then I think it behooves you to be happy and enthusiastic about their possibility for rationality. I mean, if Christ, when Christina said, I believe in a God, when we were first dating, and I just said, well, that's it, another stupid mystic, I'm out of here, right? Right. That would have been a great tragedy, right? Oh, for sure. If she said, uh, I vote liberal, which she did, I think. Yeah, then I'd be like, oh, another damn statist. Forget it, right? Right. Then, uh, well, I'd be getting a whole lot more sleep at the moment, right? <laughs> but it wouldn't be as, as good. Well, I mean, the greatest joy in my life is the uh, two ladies uh, in, in, in the room. And, uh, and, and that's also to assume that she didn't have something to teach me, right? I mean, she's taught me an absolutely enormous amount, right? Wipe front to back, wipe front to back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but she's taught me an, an enormous amount that is in a very core part of what we do here at FDR, right? Which is the unity of psychology with philosophy. Right. She bought, she not only, uh, you not only um, evoked it in her, but just uh, got a lot. Just, I mean, she contributed a lot to the whole thing. Usually, I mean, right? An enormous amount. 
So. Right, and and if she had uh, if she had looked at my lack of knowledge in certain areas and dismissed me, or if I had looked at her lack of knowledge in certain areas and dismissed her, that would have been a terrible shame, right? Now, if I could just take this end of the cable here, of uh, the end of the um, this this conclusion that. Um, if I'm enthusiastic about the potential for rationality in others, then I can evoke that in them. Well, no, you can't evoke anything in anyone, but it sure raises the odds, right? Right, okay, well, then it can raise the odds. And the problem is that I'm not enthusiastic about their potential for rationality. Um, You're dragging your ass around saying... I have something, I have a magic pill to cure your energy deficiencies. Right? Your attitude belies your words, right? Reason equals virtue equals happiness, you say. I am rational, I am virtuous, I am not happy and enthusiastic, right? Right. Though I can say I'm, I'm more... You, sorry, you can't say what? I can say that I, to the, to the degree of comparison between now and three years ago, I am far more happy and enthusiastic about things. I would say but, you're less unhappy and self-destructive. I think that you still have to cross the bridge to real enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. It, again, this is my perspective and opinion. None of this is true. This is just, you know, you're asking, so I'm, I'm saying, but this is not any definition of you. This is just my perspective and opinion, if that makes any sense. Well, and you would be right if I am not enthusiastic about the potential for rationality in others. Well, and what it means is that you're not enthusiastic about the potential for rationality in yourself, which is what you're saying to me is, look, Steph, rationality is isolating me and making me despair, right? And maybe that's the source of this. Yeah, that is the source, right? You're not enthusiastic about rationality in yourself. And therefore, you can't be enthusiastic about the rationality in others, and therefore, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Look, right. you have no choice but to become a leader. And this is true for everyone who listens to this. I don't know. I probably should have mentioned this earlier, <laughs> right? But you have, no cho you have no choice. If you are a philosopher, you are a leader of men. Like it or not, because you are certainly no longer a follower, right? And we cannot exist in isolation. We are social animals. If you are a philosopher, if you study philosophy, you are a leader, like it or not. So if this is isolating me, and it's I don't like it. It's because you're not leading. Not and if you're going to be a leader, you have to be enthusiastic. You have to motivate people. You have to excite people. You have to get their mojos a-bumpin', right? Well, maybe if I take some leadership classes or, or something, because I, I just, I, I've, never, I've never been a leader. You already know how to lead because you're doing the opposite of it, right? And anybody who does the opposite knows something, right? And like if I say go north and you say I have no idea where north is and you head exactly south, then you know exactly where north is, right? Yeah, I guess you could. Right. So if you uh, are have diminished enthusiasm or negative enthusiasm, despair, right? When put into the role of a leader, then you just have to do the opposite, right? 
I'm not saying it's easy, but you know what to do. You don't need leadership classes, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you just have to practice being enthusiastic, though it may very well feel like you're doing self-dentistry in a public square. You have to uh, just open up the spigots it? of enthusiasm, right? And because I, I had, you know, when I met Christina, I was uh, 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 not yet an anarchist, but an objectivist, a minarchist, uh, uh, very much into philosophy, uh, certainly scads of self-knowledge. I had to food and so on, right? So I had to be a leader in that aspect of our relationship and lead her to... Uh, an understanding of what I was doing, and then she has leadership, or had leadership, and still has leadership in other areas of our relationship. But when it comes to being, you, you, you can't be original and not be a leader. Because if you're original, you're either isolated or you're leading people. You, you can't be this original, right? Be uh, a secular atheist and an anarchist, and into therapy, and into self-knowledge, and into reasoning from first principles, right? And anti-statist, anti-agnostic, anti-religious, anti-irrationality, anti-superstition, anti-nationalism, anti-culture. Again, I don't know if you believe all of this, but some smattering of these yeah. things, right? Yeah, go on. All the things. Right, you I can't, can't jump. Not, I can't do that and not be a leader. Yeah, you, you can't do that and then expect people to be on the same wavelength. You have to lead them with happiness and enthusiasm. There's and, no and does other that possibility. Mean faking right? it to some degree because right now I, I'm not I'm not enjoying the isolation. That, I, that I know. I, I get that. And you're so you're how, happy to spend that not I'm... enjoying the isolation to others, right? Because you're leading people anyway, right? You're gonna lead people no matter what you do. And, and the moment you're leading people down to the Nate's pit of lonely despair, right? <laughs> Everybody, step on this uh, escalator. It goes down like an ice chute, right? Right? Everybody's a leader so, here. You're either leading people up or you're leading people down. Right? So you don't have the choice to not be a leader because you're thinking for yourself, right? But it wouldn't exactly be honest to pretend that I'm enthusiastic, would it? Or would it just uh, is is it is this one of those willpower things where where willpower is valid, where I'm just gonna have to pretend or, and then maybe Sorry, you know, where is it that I've ever said that the purpose is to pretend? I that's why that's why I'm pointing this no, out. No, you have this, you have this. to confront your despair honestly and stop projecting it on the world and recognize that it's a phenomenon that is within you that you are creating and inflicting upon the world and not extrapolate it and expend it out into the world like it's coming at you like some mysterious Martian ray from the moon. Well, I, I couldn't follow that one. The despair is within you. The irrationality is within you. That's where right. it needs to be confronted. It will not be solved in the world. Right. Right, so you confront the despair and the irrationality. You confront your fear of being a leader. And look, Nate, I understand. I really do understand, and I sympathize. It's not like our childhoods prepared us for leadership, right? No. To say the least, right? No. But uh, if you weren't, you know, I believe in the unconscious. I believe in the power of the ecosystem. If you couldn't do it, you never would have listened past the first podcast because you knew where it was going to lead. So and our natures are not myself. so cruel as to put us into situations where we will 
inevitably fail at that which we most desire. You're not that masochistic. You're not, right? Well, I've gone over my history quite a bit. So the first place I should look for this is maybe um, it means, sorry, I'm going to just it means that you're getting secondary gains or assignment the box of relief in the present from staying small and expecting the impossible, right? I mean, obviously, when you were a kid, you, ex you expected and wanted your parents to be reasonable and kind and so on, and they weren't, right? So you're right. used to not getting what you most want, right? Right, I'm used to that. And you are getting some secondary gains from playing small fry disappointed guy, right? Right, trying to get the 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 results of being big by staying small. Yeah, but so you know, what does it cost you to step up and be a real leader and to be what does it cost you to be enthusiastic? What's going to happen if you're happy and enthusiastic about well, gonna, and evidence and the truth and virtue? And people happiness. are going to do what they do with you. I mean, they're going to start hurling apples and tomatoes and, and they're going to start... Uh, well, I'm going to, of course, attract people and you've attracted a lot of friends. And, right. So the answer is that the moment you begin to become a leader, you're going to self-attack. Right, because saying that the sum total of what's happened to me is apples have been thrown at me is so irrational and anti-empirical that it clearly is a projection, right? I mean, I'm running the biggest and most successful philosophy conversation the world has ever seen. I just gave you the keynote address at one of the biggest libertarian good, forums. Good point. Right, good four point. to five right. downloads a year, 100,000 video views a month, uh, and I'm able to make a semi-decent living out of donations, right? Totally right. You're, you're totally right. Yeah. Right. So the idea that the most successful philosopher in the history of the world, you know, whether you consider that good or bad entertainment or philosophy is not right, but the most successful philosopher largely as a result of technology rather than any my, uh, of my particular gifts. But to say that the most successful philosopher in the world, that the only thing that happens is, is, is that people attack him is, is anti-empirical because you're not one of those people right even if it was just you and me right you at least it'd be one exception to the apple throwing people right exactly exactly yeah right. so, so you're what right. that means is that you that. will attack yourself if you step up into a leadership role uh, with enthusiasm and positivity and love right right so it's that 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 critic or whatever part of me that's self-attacking that I need to uh, right. get down with. Right. I mean, you have, you have listened to enough and learned enough about yourself that leadership is the only possibility, and now you're in the impossible situation, temporarily, of having prepared yourself for a leadership that you will attack yourself for achieving, right? And you, can't give, up on, you can't give up on the leadership thing because you can't go and unlearn what you've learned. All of this. It's like trying to yeah. forget English, right? Or math. You can't do it. So there's no way to go but forward, which is to confront the self-attack that arises from assuming a position of power and authority. That, that, that fits like a, like a key in a lock. Right. And 
when you assume a position of power and authority, which is what reason and evidence and originality and authenticity and virtue give you, then you will not have to find the right people because you will create them. You don't need to go looking for pearls if you can make a pearl, right? That would be awesome. And that gives you more power over the situation because right now you have no power. You're waiting to, you're just digging around in the earth with a stick hoping to find a diamond, right? Right. But this is the recipe for diamonds. The recipe for truth in the world is leadership and affection in the realm of enthusiasm and motivation, right? And this definitely explains the, the feelings I had after your talk with, uh, with Phil the other day in the empathy call. The second one. Right. Right. And, and this is, I mean, and I really do appreciate you, s you sticking through this aspect of the conversation because it's really tough, right? I mean, it is, this is the tough part, right? Because we all, I mean, a lot of us, not all, we all, but a lot of us had these difficult childhoods or uh, uh, situations where we were, even if we had happy childhoods where in public schools or whatever, we were too large for our circumstances, uh, our, mentally and, and emotionally and so on. And so we're used to feeling confined and small, and now, uh, through our pursuit of philosophy and self-knowledge, we emerge as leaders because it's impossible to be followers and we don't want to live apart from our fellow men, right? We're not going to go live in the woods, right? right. So we, we have no choice but to be leaders, and that challenges the small mammal under the feet of big reptiles hiding small strategy that we had as children for the most part, right? Is this a? I, I'm going to assume that this is like not a moment of decision because I was about to ask you if, um, if and when you were in this exact spot. Oh, I'm always in this exact spot. I'm I'm not, I'm not so a born just, leader. I am not a born leader any more than I'm a born public speaker or, or anything like that. Um, so no, this is a a kind a continual challenge. For me, which continues to grow as a challenge as the size and scope of the conversation continues to grow. So I'm right there in the trenches with you, brother. I, you know, I'm struggling as much as anyone in this realm. And there's no template for, for what I do. There's no there's history. A... There's no template. There's no do it this way. There's no, you know, philosophy podcasting for dummies, right? Right. But we can definitely say two, two degrees of uh, progress you you've uh you're way over there and you're you you've you've gotten you're, you're the farthest ahead well so, you could say that but um uh relative to uh compared to what right i mean uh compared to me well but compared to what this isn't your job right true i mean not and, with, and not of course you're still in the realm of self-comfort as opposed to ideal action, right? In other words, it's uncomfortable for me, therefore I'm not going to do it, right? Okay, yeah. And I understand that, and that happens to me as well, right? But the, the, the great challenge of committing yourself to a cause, and the cause, of course, is not me or FDR or anything like that, just for Richard's comfort, but <laughs> the course is, is the truth and the happiness and the health of the world, right? Uh, when you commit yourself to a cause, the 
the great challenge is to overcome the false self, the petty self, the small self, right? And to, to say, well, it's not about my immediate comfort. It is about the good of the course that I'm dedicated to. And the course could be something as personal and simple and powerful as your own happiness, right? It doesn't have to be anything to do with a big external course, right? If the course is your own happiness and you say, well, RTR, say, is a value that I accept, honesty and vulnerability, then for the sake of my own happiness, I am going to put aside my immediate discomfort and pursue that uh, that value, pursue that, like enact that value. I mean, that's I was ambivalent about going down to New Hampshire, uh, and of course, what made the decision for me in conversation with Christina uh, was, uh, you know, what is good for the goal that I've set myself of trying to bring as much reason as I can into the world. And we both thought about it and discussed it and said this, uh, going to New Hampshire, you know, though scary and challenging and never done anything like it before, will uh, further the goal of attempting to spread the truth in the world. Or we'll find out that I'm completely bad at it, would stammer, trip over myself, um, and would never do it again and find out that that's not a way for me to do it, right? So it wasn't with reference to what do I want to do in terms of that particular feeling in the moment because if it was just what I wanted to do I wouldn't have gone but it was because it was with reference to the larger goal of what it is I'm trying to do with my life and that's what made the decision if that makes it wasn't about my feelings in the moment it was about what was good for the cause that I had subscribed to as a whole and again that course doesn't have to be anything external it can be something as simple as your own happiness but it is with reference to that, that a decision was made, not with reference to my own immediate feelings in the moment or what I thought might or might not happen. All right, so I can pretty much sum that up to uh, not not sticking with what is comfortable, but um, with what the goal is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why we need values, right? Because if comfort, if that which was comfortable was always the right thing to do, we wouldn't need, right? Just as if we only ever wanted to eat the healthiest possible food, we'd never need nutrition, right? Yeah, this is that principle, that same principle applied to this. And it's, and it's not easy because I talk about instincts and this and that, right? But I, I think that when you start digging around in this, and I could be completely wrong as always, but my instinct, Nate, is that my gut sense, which is no proof of anything, is that when you start digging around you will find a desperate enthusiasm and desire for leadership that will shock you. Because if you did not so. have a desire for leadership, you would never have gotten involved with philosophy. Right, and now I can understand that if, if comfort, the, the immediate um, comfort of not <laughs> growing large is, is the... Uh, is the problem why why I might have had that kind of frustration with the priest about um, happiness uh, if you're <laughs> about the happiness of religion I guess the uh, yeah the, the happiness thing and you also would not have felt as you said in the call about the uh, New Hampshire speech that you wanted to do it do you remember I that I did say I wanted to do it, but sorry. I I did, yeah, I did say I would want to do something like that, but I would be terrified of. <laughs> yeah, you, but you see, you just focus on the terror. What I'm saying is lift the terror and focus on the desire. Because without the desire, there's no terror, right? Right. 
I, I watch I watch Barishnikov, as Richard mentioned earlier, right? I watch Mikhail Barishnikov do a dance. I don't feel a lot of stress because I want to be the next Barishnikov, right? Yeah. Right. I yeah, only feel uh, fear and anxiety for things which I really want that I'm afraid I'm not going to get, right? This is not to compare myself to Barishnikov, but you know what I mean, right? That's 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 definitely why I felt such intimidation, as I, I think I put it. Right, because you want to do the same thing. You want to have that same level of enthusiasm and leadership, right, that you saw uh, me, me sort of rip off somehow in New Hampshire. And uh, that is why you got into philosophy. That's why it's tough for you to take this next step. Uh, and that would be, I mean, if I were you, that would be my goal to work on, is to get more in touch with my desire for leadership and to get more in touch with the inhibitions and, and focus on what it is my goal is going to be in the long run in terms of bringing truth and reason to the world and thus creating the kind of companionship that I, at the moment I'm just grubbing around in the dirt trying to find when instead I could take a leadership role and create that in my own life. Well, I just had a thought that this, this may be why I sort of forgot about the acting class. About the what? About the acting class that I missed the other day. It could be. It could be. Because that involves getting up in front of people that, and I'm kind of scared of it. I'm really scared of it, actually. Right. And I was scared of going to New Hampshire, right? Because I wanted to do well. Right. So that which we're scared of is, is what we want to do, right? And you don't have a choice, right? You can't go back. Right? No. No, I can't. I can't go back. I don't. Right. Yeah, I don't want to sit in this limbo anymore. No, no, you don't. You don't. I got something to talk about on Tuesday with my therapist. Good. Well, I'm sorry about this. I hope this wasn't too too horrible. And I, I do appreciate your patience as we work through this. Was, was this useful or, or helpful? Was there other stuff that would have been better to talk about or more useful to approach? Oh, <laughs> this is this is right on target. I, this is where I need to go next. Beautiful. Um, okay, well, well, thank you so much. And I, I, your, I, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask what your experience of talking to me was. And I was oh, a little good. foggy. And, yeah. It was good. There was just a little bit of fog, but that, <laughs> I thought that was actually more cute than anything else, right? in a non-dominative way. So, um, no, I, I do appreciate it because I know that you're not alone in this. I know that it feels like you are maybe, but I absolutely can guarantee you that there are lots of other people in this community who are facing this this kind of uh, crossroads. Uh, and so you going up and taking the bullet for everyone, I think, was a huge service uh, to, to others. And I think that uh, um, you should be very happy about that. Great. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Nate. I really do appreciate that. And thanks, of course, to Richard for his uh, excellent uh, feedback and uh, demonstrations of, of courage and honesty in the moment So, and in his history as well. So thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, for coming, don't forget about the barbecue, amiando.com forward slash omgfdrbbq09, if I remember rightly. If someone could put that in the chat window, who knows it? I'd appreciate it. I will actually get the right URL out if I've gotten it wrong. I remember it was some godforsaken acronyms <laughs> that were going on. Um, I'll post it on the board if I can't get it uh, uh, in the chat room. It was OMZ. You which? O OMZ? OMZ, yeah. OMZ. Could you give the whole URL? Uh, yeah, just one moment. Oh, my uh, Zeus, right, that's it? 
Yes, uh, from, from, from the uh, Socrates video. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Amiando.com, A-M-I-A-N-D-O.com slash O-M-Z or Z if you're Canadian, FTRBBQ2009.html. Now that is one user-friendly URL. Uh, maybe we can tiny URL that one. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, everybody, for a great, great show. Uh, thanks, as always, to the listeners and to the people who are providing comments in the chat room, which we now can hold 40 users, which is good to know. And uh, I look forward to your donations. Thank you to the new subscribers. Please feel free to subscribe. I'm still handing out the Miko System podcast like a, uh, an arrogant slut. Uh, under a street lamp swinging my purse uh, and uh, so I will send you the links to those. Uh, sorry about the paucity of podcasts. I have a good set coming up and um, uh, I look forward to getting your feedback and uh, I will talk to you next week if not before. All the best everyone and thanks again so so much for everything.